Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, January 23rd, 2009. I'm Elena Rankin. What do you get when you put a professional pickpocket and a cognitive neuroscientist in the same room? Some incredible optical illusions. Apollo Robbins is an ex-magician and sleight-of-hand artist. Christoph Koch is a visual perception expert at Caltech. Science in the City brought them together last week to talk about the science of vision. This week, you'll hear some of the highlights from the program, and some clips from an interview I did with Apollo and Christoph. Hi, my name is Apollo Robbins, and I'm a professional thief. It means I steal honestly and I give things back. I guess you might say that my undergrad was in magic and my specialty is in thievery, frauds, and deception, uh, diversion theft. I uh, started off as a performer, and I do a variety act where I work as a pickpocket. But these days, I find myself working a lot with police departments and tourist safety groups on studying the attention management and diversion theft. I'm uh, Christoph Koch. I'm a professor of biology and engineering at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena. I study vision because it's our dominant sense. I mean, if you become blind, it's much worse than if you catch a cold and can't smell anymore. I study vision because ultimately I'm interested in the mind-body problem, consciousness, how consciousness comes into the physical world, and vision is one of the best experimental ways to study it. And lastly, we can build uh, machines that can see, and so there's an engineering component to it. What's remarkable about this sense is, and the main point I'd like to leave you with, these sense, like all the other senses, is an active process. It's not the idea that you open your eyes and passively there's all that information that streams into your eye and then, then automatically that gives a description of the environment. No. What your brain does, it does it day in, day out, as long as your eyes are open, it constructs a description of the world. So here you see that. You have this very simple cube. So it has a total of 12 lines, right, on a plane. You can see this on the plane of the projector. There are just 12 elongated lines. Yet what you should see is a box, a cube. And if you look at it for a long time, you might notice it actually it changes perspective. You can see it in one of two possible orientations. This was discovered in 1812 by a um, Swiss uh, geologist who was looking at minerals, and this is now known as the Necker cube. The point here is that you see a three-dimensional entity, but th- there is no three-dimensional entity. I can assure you there are no lines here. Right? It's, it's just flat on the plane. So it's a perfect demonstration of uh, this falling truism made by a famous English visual theoretician, David Ma, that perception is a construction of a description of the world. Tonight we're going to talk about visual perception, but it's also true of the other senses as well. But there's never enough information in the visual world, and your brain evolved, as I said, over the last couple of hundred million years to construct a description using all sorts of constraints. Hello, how are you? Good to see you. Can you hold up your fingers? Ah, you got a couple of rings and a watch. Uh, we got some earrings. It's almost like a buffet. I'm not quite sure where to begin. It's <laughs> Thank you very much. I'll hold on to that. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, w- Jake, we're not going to be able to... D- I couldn't find it. Go and cut the music. I, it's rather odd. I couldn't find my Metro card. But for $5 investment, it's amazing what you can pick up. We have a couple of things here, sir. Actually, we did end up with your BlackBerry. The general public has a tendency to trivialize magic. It's usually associated with something as an entertainment uh, for children, uh, just two notches above or below clowns and mimes. But I think, in general, they're surprised to find out, and that's one of the motivators for me also, is trying to alter their 
the perception of what magic is. Uh, the word trick is, is uh, almost detrimental to magic in the, that form, even though it is actually a trick. Uh, we're basically creating many deceptions, these illusions that we create. And those illusions, as uh, Christoph has pointed out to me many times, aren't just visual illusions, but they're also perceptual illusions. I would like to share something with you from the overlap between the science community and the magic community. We found that there's some similarities. One is the way we understand misdirection. I think that generally misdirection by the general public is misunderstood. The general thought is the magician wants us to look at one hand while he does something else. He wants us to look away from that hand while this hand is the target. We don't want you to just look away because that can hit us in the back of the head just like a boomerang that we throw away carelessly. We want to redirect your attention. So if you think about a play and how it's carefully directed, that's what magic really is. That's what misdirection is. We use two main techniques to do that. One is visual and the other is cognitive. There's a lot of information coming into you from your senses. We can either make you have false assumptions right at the beginning by creating a visual illusion, or we can try to manipulate it after it's been processed in your brain before you actually have it come all the way out. What I'd like to show you is a very simple distraction technique. If you think of attention like a spotlight, now both science and magic have used this as a good metaphor, I think. If you think of attention like a spotlight on the stage, there are many things that are in the field of view, but what's, in, what's interesting to you is in that attention, inside that spotlight. Now, that's focused attention, but then there's relaxed attention where you broaden out. That often happens when people laugh. So as I'm about to do something with one of you, you'll have focused attention. And then when you relax, you'll have broadened attention. We use both of those to deceive you. We'll talk about attention. What's the function of attention? What, what is it in brief? So if we just talk about the visual domain, there are roughly, you probably all know from uh, maybe from high school, dissection calls there are roughly a million fiber that call the optic nerve that leave the eye. Each one contains roughly one million fibers and they go, as I said, to the back of the brain. They contain roughly a million bytes of information. So that sounds a lot, but of course, it's probably a sixth of what a USB bus today will do, and it's uh, like a hundred twenties of what a USB 2 bus will carry. But it's still too much information that the brain cannot deal with that deluge of information in real time. And this is not only true of us, it turns out the selective visual attention is true for almost all animals where it has been tested. It's certainly true for all, for all mammals, it's true for birds, and it has even been tested in this animal as slowly as flies. So Drosophila also has attention, and you can probably do fly magic. So the problem for the brain is that information, plus of course all the other information coming streaming in from all the other senses, is way too much to be handled. And so throughout uh, evolution arose a set of rules, a set of algorithms, that uh, for selecting a subset of information, and that subset of information we process preferentially, typically at a high bandwidth, at a high speed. Typically, we're much better when we attend to things. We're much better at detecting errors there. We're much quicker at finding things there. We are more accurate when we have to make a very fine sensory judgment. Combining certain things is only possible at the spotlight of attention. We can be aware of things outside our spotlight. For example, I can look over there and I can be aware of what's over here, but if I'm aware of things over here, I will miss completely things that are over here. Uh, well, much of what we don't attend, we, do, we literally don't see. And there are lots of illusions to demonstrate that. And of course, there's the existence of magic to demonstrate all that. If you don't attend, by and large, not always, but by and large, you will not see it. Another reason why we uh, need attention is something that's unique to us, particular to uh, primates, it's not true for every system, and it's not true, for example, for your average uh, camera like this one in my, in my iPhone, namely we, our sensors, our photoreceptors are not distributed evenly throughout the retina. So you have a very high concentration of sensors, of uh, so-called photoreceptors at the center of vision called the fovea. So that's why 
where we look, we really see very sharp, but we have many fewer receptors in the distal periphery. So out here we, have, we sample things much less accurately than we sample at the center. As a consequence of that, of this very uneven sampling strategy, we have to constantly move our eyes. I think of perception partly as a con job. It creates this illusion that I see everything equally clear everywhere. That I see everything in color, but none of those things is true if you actually go in a lab and test them. We move our eyes constantly, three to four times a second. You move your eyes as often as your, as your heart beats during the day, constantly. The vast majority of the time, 99.99%, you're utterly, totally oblivious to that. It's one of these interesting servo functions that our brain does for us. It's a very complicated servo function, but it's something we are almost never, never aware of. We can, of course, consciously move, unvoluntarily control our eyes, and we sometimes do that, but by and large, we don't do that during the normal course of affairs. And furthermore, we can now build computer models this is a computer model I'm doing with people at MIT, with my old doctor father, Tommy Podge at MIT, and with some, uh, some of my students at USC. Well, here we designed, we exploit this attentive seeing in computer sensors. Now, where you have a sensor, it's stationed just outside MIT, the Artificial Intelligence Lab, and this big camera is looking the, at the entire scene. And then it computes using various algorithms we discovered that uh, it always computes what's the most salient location, the, the most interesting location using various criteria, very similar to the criteria that we use in the brain. In fact, these criteria we derive from knowledge of the primate um, visual system. And then it says, currently you want to attend to this location. So then the computer, rather than processing everything, which it can't do right now, given today's technology, it only processes things around here. And you can see it by and large, it correctly identifies a pedestrian, car, sometimes it, doesn't, it can't identify it, but it's a, they're getting very clever. Now, this is a military system. It's not going to be fielded for a while, but in 10 years, we'll see this attentive system out, in the, you know, out there as concierge or out in front of an ATM. So that just shows that we're beginning to understand enough of these attentional, attentional systems so that we can build machines that emulate some of that, that function. I mean, most of these are still that we do, or there are lots of uh, researchers who do these sorts of research where they try to take biological principle and apply them to machine vision. They're not in the production. I mean, these are experimental prototypes, uh, although they will be out there, um, you know, in a couple of years, for example, as concierge, as some people are working on a, you know, on a system that's in the, inside the door and that you speak to it to try to then do voice identification. It looks at you and tries to see, are you really who you are, and then opens the door. Those are some of the early applications or other security applications. I don't know which my favorite one is. They're still not uh, nearly, nearly as robust as our visual system. I mean, I can do this and this. I can put on my glasses. I can go upside down, and you have no trouble recognizing me as me. <laughs> and many of these systems are still so brittle that they still can't handle the viability. You have to sit exactly like this. The light has to be here. Then they can recognize you. Yeah. So this is the secret of vision, that all these things we think are so easy, actually, so very difficult to do. Once you actually force, once I, okay, I tell you, here's a computer, here's a program, now do it. If you think it's easy, try to show it, try to show, and then it turns out it's actually very difficult. We still cannot mimic the visual abilities of a simple housefly, because a housefly can turn, make a visual uh, saccade. They also do saccades, just like Apollo mentioned, we move our eyes in this particular pattern called saccade. Flies do this sort of body saccade, where they shift the entire head, and they can do this in a 30s or 50s of a second, much, much faster than we can. It's all under visual control. And they can find their mate in flight. So they have these amazing visual abilities, and we're still very far from trying to mimicking, from being able to mimic those in machines. If you think of uh, the way attention is distracted, now in the example that we were using there, we were trying to use visual attention and peripheral manipulation. Uh, a while ago when I was doing the pickpocketing in the group, uh, I was using a couple of things to distract when I did steal. Uh, I'd like to do that demonstration again with one of you, uh, with you knowing what I was about to do, uh, where you can see it up close. Uh, let me uh, just borrow for a moment. Hello, sir. How are you? I like that you wear your wallet on the outside. Uh, hello, sir. 
Do you do magic yourself? You don't? What's your name? Jerry. Jerry, may I see both of your hands for a second? Uh, I want to see, you're wearing a ring here. You have a watch on the wrist. Uh, you have a couple of things in the pockets. May I borrow you for a moment to do something? I think that's right. probably the dichotomy that I grew up in. My father was a minister, very conservative. Uh, now, he had a, married a widow, and my two brothers were involved in, uh, I guess you'd say short cons would be the term, or pickpocketing. I was exposed to that when I was young. Uh, but by the time I was in my teens and I decided to become a performer, my brothers had engaged in some much more aggressive uh, crimes at that point. Well, the favorite illusions are these close-up illusions when, you know, you're, you're sitting there like this, you know, it's a quiet room, and yeah, he's two feet in front of me, and he takes a coin and he makes it disappear, or he makes it appear, and I don't. he takes a pen and, and makes this whooshing movement with his hand, and the, the pen just disappears in plain, in plain view. And here there's no distracting, there's nobody else distracting, no strobe light, no loud music, and you're just looking at it, and wh- it works again and again. I mean, if you have this amazing you know, ability that, that, that Apollo has, and that's just so fascinating to me how your visual system again and again can fool you. For the combination what I do, I use uh, two things. Now, something Christoph was mentioning earlier, there's two motions. In magic, we often say the bigger motion covers the smaller motion. That's not necessarily all there is to it. There's also two motions that you have with your eyes. If you look at my fingers or your fingers directly in front of you, if you look from one to the other, that's the saccade that Christoph was talking about. Your eyes will snap from one to the other. What's scary is that you're blind in between them. Uh, it's not really there. It's just uh, something that he mentions. It's a, a fill-in. As you move your eyes, right, you can all see my eyes move, correct? Now, none of you can, your, can see your own eyes move. Nobody. You can try this tonight in your bathroom mirror. In fact, you can try it later on here in the bathroom. You can look in the, in the mirror and you can try to do this. You will never see your own eyes move. Now, it's not because the eyes move instantaneous. It's not true. It takes roughly 30 to 50 milliseconds to move your eyes. But what happens, well, imagine what would happen if you take a camera and move your camera around, you know, four times a second. You would get nauseated, right? And plus there would be motion blur because you, you, when you take a picture you know, while it's exposed, you, while you move, you get a blur. So the brain avoids that because that's detrimental to the brain. But what, what it does, it's very clever. It's just like post-editing in Hollywood. It takes those 50 milliseconds, it snippets them out, just like in post-production a movie. But then, it, then if, you would, if the brain would just do that, every time you move your eyes, you would get these annoying 30 to 40 millisecond lapses of just black. And of course, we don't see those. Ex- uh, so what the brain does, it, inter- it interpolates, it splices in some new movie, suggesting, like for example in this bathroom, ex- bathroom mirror example, that I saw it all the time. So it's a really clever thing. This was only discovered recently, and it's, it's something, if you add up all the little times that you were effectively blind because of psychotic suppression, it's an amazing 30 to 40 minutes a day. So that means in principle, during 20 to 40 minutes a day, your brain actually doesn't get any visual input because it's shut down, yet you don't notice this. There's also the motion of chasing. So you have those two choices, either to chase a motion or to snap from one to the other. So what's more interesting when you're stealing is that if I do a half circle, it's more engaging to this tracking motion in your eyes. If you think about if you're watching a baseball game here, I'm sure we have a few baseball fans, if you hit a line drive and it stays in the air, you'll assume where that's going to from point A to point B. But if it bounces, you'll chase it like a cat does a string. It's just chasing all those points of interest. So this becomes more interesting with point A, B, C versus just A, B. So when I come out of a pocket, if I go straight, his attention will snap back to the pocket like a rubber band. But if I go in an arch, he engages his tracking motion in almost a ballistic fashion before he cognitively processes it and goes back. That was a lot of big words for me. Sorry, I have to catch my breath. In this case, I would like to show you one other thing I used with it. That that was the personal space. Can you face me directly, Jerry? Now, Jerry, you wear glasses, uh, so this may work a little bit differently. But the personal space, you still have that. You're checking your pocket. 
so when I'm coming into your space, I'm, I'm at the edge of your personal space here. Now I'm inside of it. Do you feel the difference? That would engage a sense of intimacy <laughs> that I wasn't quite aware of, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, actually, that's one thing that's true, because a lot of times when people don't feel a sense of it, uh, for couples, families, things like that, they have a sense of intimacy where the personal space, if you try that with someone, you won't feel that as much when you're close to them. This is also affected with different cultures, too, with how comfortable they are inside the personal space. Now, that's shaped somewhat like an egg. Now, if you think of it shaped like an egg, where it's smaller on the sides and it's longer in the front, then you can understand better how to get inside of it. For me, uh, working as a thief or a pickpocket, I want to get inside his personal space. One way I can do that is by breaking eye contact when I go inside of his personal space. It's almost like a dog going into another dog's territory and breaking eye contact. It's a behavioral type of activity. So when I break eye contact, I may share something with him with my hands as I come inside. So we're now both sharing the same path of information as we're looking at each other, but I'm at the closest side of his space. That's why when you realize when he was turned this way, we were both facing the same motion. We were on the side to side. I was playing the buddy angle as I'm doing a lot of the stealing with him. What's also interesting is while I'm here, if I bring in my face into his personal space, it, it engages him to want to look up. So if he doesn't look up, he'll still think about looking up. Now, that comes to attention as a pie. If you think of the attentional pie, my goal is to let him see the effect, but also to cut his pie into various pieces. So when I touched his shoulder a while ago and I loaded the coin, this at the second time became a pattern. So he was trying to identify Am I going to catch this the next time? Yet, when I put the hand over here on the other shoulder, this was just a slight red herring or a ruse. I was reaffirming him, but at the same time, there was a part of his brain that had to think, was he trying to put the coin on the other shoulder, or is it still over here? And at that point, that's when he became engaged with that, plus my face coming into his personal space, that he lost his watch. We're using those combinations. Uh, this was, for example, done, this is done in a professional context, in a much more scary context, where this was done by NASA for test pilots when they do simulated landings in simulator, and in four of those uh, pilots, they convinced some uh, psychologists managed to convince them to do these experiments, they included this picture and landing approach, right? So you're uh, about to simulate a landing, and you're landing right on top of this big jet. Now, of course, the, the thing you should do, you should as quickly as you can pull up to do an emergency abort of the landing, right? Two of the pilots did, and two of the pilots did not. In fact, it's estimated that these sort of inattentional lapses are due probably responsible for a significant part of accidents in aviation or in car traffic when there's no other cause. You know, when there's a clear day, there was no fog, no rain, no foul play, no drugs, no alcohol in play, and people just don't see something. Uh, this is particularly the case, for example, when you're on a cell phone. When you're on a cell phone, it's not so much the act of dialing. I mean, that may also be somewhat distracting, but that's quickly over in a few seconds, you know, in particular today with hands-off phone. What's really dangerous from a point of view of driving when you're cognitively engaged. And it's different than when somebody's in the car, because when somebody's in the car and suddenly the, the situation becomes dangerous or critical, the person will be qui will quiet, right, would modulate the conversation. But of course, your phone partner doesn't know that. And we all know from our own experience or from driving uh, behind a person who uses a cell phone, that you're much more likely to drive through red lights, pass up stop signs, etc. So psychologists have, have shown this obj in with objective uh, tests using very simulator. Basically, as dangerous driving with a cell phone as driving and illegally intoxicated. Uh, coincidentally, the cell phones are a great sign for a thief. A lot of times, pickpockets, when they're watching you in the mall or on the street, uh, the cell phone lets them know that you have your attention engaged so you become a bigger target. If you've ever wondered, besides the things that you wear and the items that you flash around at the ATM and when you purchase, a cell phone is a very interesting sign for them because it shows where your attention is dedicated, especially if you're in an intense conversation. 
Now, if you don't have a cell phone and you're performing like a magic routine or something like that, this cognitive distraction is uh, another process. For myself, when I'm doing things with Jerry, all those proximity manipulations and gazes, what I'm trying to do is get him to talk to himself inside, to have an interior monologue. Because the more conversations I can get to him to have himself, that self-doubt, that analyzation, that's what allows me to deceive him on the outside. It interrupts his sensory perception. It stops him from perceiving his sense of touch, his sense of uh, vision, and he, he nullifies those by second-guessing himself, which also happens to me if I c consciously think about what I'm doing, and then uh, you can almost smell the fear on me when I'm performing. I'll briefly tell you how we brain scientists, particularly those of us who are interested in consciousness, use uh, various forms of suppression in the lab to study the footprints of consciousness. So here, this is a technique developed a few years ago. I'll show you, in the, you come to the lab, you lie, for example, in a magnetic scanner, and I show you with your left eye, I'll show you this angry face that you only see with your left eye. With your right eye, you see these uh, series of so-called dance of the Dutch painter Piet Mondrian, but they change very rapidly. They change like every 10 times a second, every 100 milliseconds. What you'll see, you will completely and utterly fail to see the angry face, although biologically it's a very powerful stimulus. But what you'll see is, is this. Now, of course, you can see, you can immediately see the face as soon as you close your right eye. Even if you just blink it briefly, you'll see the, uh, the face. There's nothing wrong with the stimulus, nothing wrong with your eye. It's just what happened. It's a form of very powerful form of perceptual suppression. Your visual system doesn't like seeing two things at once. And it suppresses it. In this case, this one is much more vivid. It's high contrast. It's color and it rapidly changes. This is static. It's low contrast. So your brain totally suppresses it. Now, we can do this for many, many seconds. So you can, in other words, be, let's say, for a minute in a magnet. Your left eye is stimulated by the angry face. And in fact, we can track now what parts of the brain respond to unconscious vision. So for example, there's a researcher in Minnesota who showed that amygdala, that some of you might have heard of, the structure studied here by Joseph Ledoux at NYU, uh, that's involved, for example, in fear, which would be readily activated by such stimuli. The amygdala is still activated, although you consciously don't see the face. But the part of your brain that's responsible for fear-related stimuli still processes it. So it's a nice way to tease out conscious from unconscious processing. This takes us to the neuronal domain. So far, we've been at the perceptual domain. Uh, since many years, I work with neurosurgeons. We record, in, we record from patients. Almost everything we know, 99.9% .9 of the stuff we know about nerve cells, is from animal experiments, for obvious reasons. But sometimes, on a rare condition, there's an opportunity to record nerve cells from the brains of patients. This is sound, is the sounds of neurons. So what we do, we take, we, these are, uh, so the surgeon here, Itzhak Fried at UCLA, he implanted, these are epileptic patients who have to be monitored for onset of epileptic seizures. So in the clinic for three to five days, they have these electrodes in there, in this case in the hippocampus. And then what, what Fried adds, he adds these tiny microwires. And now this allows you to listen, with the permission of the patient, to listen to neurons. I mean, this is a metaphorically what we do. We take the electrical signals, we amplify them, then we put them on a loudspeaker, and you can hear them sort of chat, uh, chant, uh, chat away. And so now we can record in this patient what happens when it's conscious or what happens it's unconscious. And th so this is a part of the brain. Some of you may know it's involved in memory and long-term processing of information. The patient is awake. There's curiously, although the brain is the organ of pain perception, there are no pain receptors itself in the brain. So by itself, once you go through the skull, the patients are, you know, they're sitting there, they're happy to do our experiments. And here, for example, it's one of the few graphs I show you. We show the response. We've, we've discovered a particular neuron. 
that show sensitive to particular images. So here what you see, you see the individual trial. Each dot is one of these, uh, these, uh, pop, these uh, rice corn popping. It's so-called an action potential and a spike. The universal language that neurons use to communicate these binary pulses. And there you can see it's triggered by images of a specific celebrity, in this case, Jennifer Aniston. You have other neurons that respond, in this case, to um, Halle Berry. So Foxman doesn't respond to other celebrities. It doesn't respond to other women who look like her, but the patient no isn't her. It also, in this case, responds quite resp remarkable also responds to the name Halle Berry. So it's a high-level neuron that seems to fire every time Halle Berry. There's an image of Halle Berry present. You will have also those neurons, maybe not for Halle Berry, but for George W. Bush or for your grandmother, for your favorite dog, for anything else visual that's, that you learn, that you're exposed to every single day, all the time. Your brain sort of decides, for reasons we don't quite understand, to wire up neurons that respond to that. Not only to that, but that respond to specific familiar images. Now we can ask, in this case, a neuron that responds to curly. So this experiment here is an, ex is an experiment flash suppression. We wanted to know what happens in this part of the brain, it's a high-level part of the brain, if you show the stimulus, but it's perceptually suppressed. So here we have the simple experiment. We show in the left, right eye, all you see is curly. It's one of these three stooges. In the left eye, there's nothing. Perceptually, what you see is curly. And this particular neuron fires. It, 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 it likes curly. <laughs> then you flash on the, the uh, curly is still present, but now you flash on this new image, uh, the grating. And just like I showed you before, we said continuous flash suppression, flashing on a new thing, perceptually totally suppresses the old thing. So you don't see curly anymore, all you see the grating. And the neuron shuts down its activities, dramatically reduced. Wonderful thing about this experiment is the physical input is always present. But what changes is your conscious perception. Sometimes you're conscious, and other conditions you're not conscious. And we can do experiments like this, or we can do fMRI um, uh, imaging experiments to, to try to track the footprints of consciousness in your brain. We are trying to understand the neural base of consciousness in, in animals, in particular in, uh, in humans. So we do various manipulations where we really try to focus on, on where the parts of the brain, the sectors of the brain that are responsible for, for generating any one specific conscious visual percept. And then also to ultimately trying to understand, uh, trying to drive a theory of consciousness. What is it that makes a system conscious? Are you conscious? Is a fetus conscious? Is a dog conscious? Is a squid conscious? Can I build? Is this Macintosh conscious? If not, why not? What's missing? Is there a magic ingredient missing? Does it have to be squishy? You know, does it have to be squishy bilipid membranes? Or can you recreate it in, um, in transistors? Those are questions we are asking. Well, what do you think? I think ultimately it, it consciousness relates to the informational relationship among complicated subcomponents like our neurons. In principle, I think if you can re recreate those in silicon by hardware or software, you should be able to create an artifact that will have conscious sensation. Just uh, for me, learning uh, a lot of the physiology between uh, what has been discovered in those areas. Uh, for myself, I, I'm self-educated for uh, on this specific topic, uh, so. Uh, learning the processes versus just having instinctual understanding. I have an interest that's probably spurred both by my career but also the way that I was raised. I think uh, perhaps a good example, a lot of times when you see someone who's been raised by parents that are deaf, you'll find that their faces are rather uh, a lot of times more expressive in the way that they communicate. For myself, I was raised with a father who was blind. So with my father being blind, I often had to uh, interpret the way I saw the world to him, and he would ask specific questions. So I would have to learn to look at it from his perspective of what he was trying to look for in the world. Uh, combine that with the, the deception from my brothers and things, and I think it, it leads to a natural fulfillment of where we are right now. When we talk with journalists, they always want to get the human story. Mm -hmm. the human, uh, why do you do this? And you know, what are your motivations? which is all fine, but ultimately, 
we care about the knowledge itself because it's beautiful. For, you know, if you, for example, if we understand consciousness, consciousness is a wonderful gift that we're given, right? We don't know why, but we have these feelings. We are born into the world and we actually have feelings. And it's really fascinating to understand wh where do they come from? Is it a property of matter? Is it probably something above matter? Can, can other entities have it? And rather than focusing, okay, why do you study it? Because, you know, I had a traumatic experience when I was a child or whatever. I've, I find the knowledge in and of itself is utterly fascinating for me. But by and large, people are less interested in that and more sort of why, do I, why am I motivated to study this rather than, you know, what is it that you've learned? Thanks for listening. If you love Science in the City podcast and appreciate new science content every week, we would love your support. There are two ways you can help us out. The first is to become a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit us online at scienceandthecity.org for more information. The second thing you can do is sponsor a Science in the City podcast. Get your name and advertising in an episode of our Science in the City podcast distributed to thousands of listeners every week. For more information, email Adrian Burke at aburke at nyas.org. Want a quick and easy way to download our podcasts? Subscribe to them on iTunes. Just search Science in the City in your iTunes search bar. And as always, if you have any questions or comments about a podcast you hear on Science in the City, we would love your feedback. You can send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. And don't forget to visit us online www.scienceandthecity.org See you next week!